let's look in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Last week we were talking about the supremacy, the preeminence of Christ in uh, creation. And um, boy, what did you all think? And then Keith Palmer gets up to preach and he talks about Christ and creation. I, I, that was just so neat to, to my heart that, uh, you know, we, that's what we centered our time on. And then Keith was uh, speaking of that as well. I was really blessed with that. It's just so neat to see how um, intricately God's Word is woven within itself, right? You know, that's one of the complaints that a lot of uh, people that don't like expository teaching or preaching have is that, well, you don't get to hear, you know, well, the whole thing's tied together, right? And we saw that last week as as Keith um, preached for us after us looking at our lesson here. So let's read verses uh, 15 to 23. Again, remembering that um, this was probably a hymn that Paul had grown up hearing. Um, of course, he probably didn't pay any attention to it as a, a persecutor of, of Christians, but... In verse 15, talking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, again, this this hymn is showing the supremacy of Christ in creation, which is where we spent our whole time uh, last week, and... I think what Paul is doing here is he's he's giving us all this information about the preeminent Jesus Christ. And his purpose, I think, is to stretch our thinking, to stretch our human mind. I mean, when you really start to contemplate that, you know, that it just, in my puny mind, just does not make sense at all that this God of the universe would come... I mean, is that everybody, let's look real quick at, I'm sorry, that Isaiah chapter 6. Um, just flip there real quick. Um, this, this is Christ that Isaiah is having a vision of, and that this God would come and, and sacrifice himself for us. Isaiah chapter 6, um, verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's, that's, you get the scene, and Jesus left that, and, and he's here on earth now, and, and Paul is talking about, you know, this magnificent creator of everything, including us, right? And he wants that thought to dominate our thinking. Why? So it will have a profound impact in changing our lives. So when we, when we, when you think of Christ being the creator, what kind of an impact does that have on your life individually, day by day, when you contemplate that? Does anybody want to share on that? I mean, I'm amazed at it. You know, just amazed of the, the intricacy that's involved in creation when we look around ourselves. How, what does that do for you? What do you think? Pardon? Leads to praise. And why? Yeah, I mean, that, it should, right? <laughs> what were you going to say? Somebody else was going to say something? I think yes, it ma'am. puts our worries in their place because we realize that God is over everything. Mm-hmm. He's in charge of it all, and why am I worrying? Right. When I know that he created all of this, he created human being life. Right. Why am I so worried all the time? You know? Yeah. So how do you get your thinking there? Mm-hmm. all of nature he takes care of and he's taking care of the details of how much more so us who are his children. Right. Great. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, doesn't it you know, I mean, we're, we're humans. We're the pinnacle of that creation, right? When you think about it. And think of the intricacies that's involved in that. And then, like, this morning I was drinking my little smoothie thing, looked out the window, and right by our kitchen window there's a crepe myrtle that's got these... I hate this, but i got to chop it down. <laughs> it's got these tiny little uh, leaves coming out on it. You know, just all that kind of stuff is just... You know, it makes me, like you said, it humbles me to think that something's making this all happen day after day after day and sustaining it. I think it gives meaning to our existence. Okay, good. You have a a meaningful, non-accidental existence. Good, good. And that meaning shows us the purpose too then, right? You know, as it bleeds into that of... I mean, do you ever wonder why you're here, you know, other than to be the great husband you are or the great wife you are or the great person, you know? I mean, you ever wonder about that? What am I doing here, right? And it causes us to submit our problems to that because of the meaning that's behind it. 
Um, so, on, you know, on the creation side, as we talked about now, look at verse 18. Because he shifts a little here. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's supreme, right? He's sovereign over the church, just as he is sovereign and supreme over creation. You know, when when we became believers, we all became part of Christ's body. No matter what church we go to, when we when when we're born again, we become part of the body of Christ, and that's done through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul writes in First Corinthians twelve, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So as members of this body, we're totally dependent upon the head of the body, which is Christ, right? We're dependent upon him for direction and control. He's the one that controls us. And the reason for his supreme exalted position in the body of Christ is in verse 18 as well. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Now, we saw that word firstborn in verse 15, which means first in rank. And that's exactly what it means here because we know that Jesus wasn't the first one um, resurrected from the dead. So it means that though that he is first in rank, the most important, he was the most important of all who have been raised from the dead because Corinthians teaches us as well that without his resurrection from the dead into eternal life in heaven, then, you know, we don't have any hope of that either, right? So what a wonder this all had to be to the Gnostics. You know, in, in their speculative way of looking at things, they could have never dreamed up something like this. They had to have been dumbfounded at this point with Paul's teaching. Uh, well, he's writing to, uh, talking to Epaphras, writing the letter to go back. But, you know, when they heard this, they would have been just shocked, you know. Wow, you know, they, they thought they came up with a big uh, way of looking at things and then Paul is just tearing it to pieces here. You know, but, and, and the reason is is because a plan like this could only come from what? From God himself. Nobody could have designed a plan like that. So it says that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be supreme. Now bring that down to the daily lives of you and I. What does that mean? It means that he is to be first in our families, first in our marriages, first in our professions, first in our ministries, first in our intellects, first in what we read, first in what we watch, first in our time, first in our love, first in our conversation. I got a lot of these written. First in our pleasures, first in eating, first in playing, first in athletics, first in what we watch. First place in art, first place in music, first place in worship. We got to give him first place. Now, what does that mean in the day to day things for us? How do we give him first place in all of those things? My breakdown personally, as I think I shared last week, is I can't see him, I can't smell him, I can't touch him, I can't audibly hear him. I struggle with giving him first place because of those, you know, human characteristics that I, you know, I don't have a problem with that with my wife. I see her. I can touch her. 
I, you know, I can communicate verbally, audibly with her. So how do we get there in our own lives? And I think it's the things we've already talked about, right? When you realize who this is that we're talking about and, and that he is supreme over everything else that there ever has been, then we have a whole different appreciation for him, right? Or at least we should. Um, I read that quote by John Owen last week. Let me, I want to read that again. Listen to this. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with the rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole of creation. I mean, we, we talked all week last week, and Keith preached on creation as well, as we said. And Owen is saying the way that Jesus Christ is revealed in the gospel is more wonderful than that. You know, that makes me want to go home and read my Bible as I contemplate the creation. But next, Paul shows us... Um, something really profound in verses 19 and 20. The Father's pleasure to reconcile us. Look at verse 19. If if you think all that creation and being first and being baptized into the church and Christ being first place and that as well, you think all that's neat, this blows it away. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, that includes me and you, right? Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul tells us that God the Father found pleasure in having all the fullness dwell in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was no less God than God the Father. And that, you know, is where other religions make a break from Christianity, right? To them, Jesus was, Muslims in particular, was just, he was a prophet, but he wasn't God. That's where it separates. He is God. There's uh, Dr. Bruce Ware, um, a professor at Southern Seminary, wrote a book a few years ago called The Man Christ Jesus. I encourage you all to get that, read that. It it just explains all this out in in layman's terms. Um, Paul's use of the word fullness here was an, this was an intentional slap or, or a, a, a blow to the face of the Gnostics because they used that same Greek word to denote the totality of the thousands of little g emanation gods that spring forth from God. You know, that was their same word used by them. And Paul says, no, that fullness is in Christ himself. He's not one of the lesser gods. He is the fullness of God. And and he says it again, look down at uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he, even a little more explicitly, for in him, meaning in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So fullness means the totality of divine power and attributes of God in Christ. And and it's we could say that Jesus is the exhaustion of God. You can't get any more God than you get there in Christ. All right. Um, on top of that, the fullness is said to dwell in bodily form, meaning it's not temporary. It was and is there to stay. 
So we don't need to look to anything other than Jesus Christ for the full revelation of God and God's character. So now, again, we have just separated Christianity from the rest of the religions in the world because they all have, they might all say they believe, or not all, but you know, a lot of them say they believe in God the Father, right? And, and yet they have these other little prophets or, or whatever. Well, take the Jews, for instance. Right? I mean, what do they believe? Does most of the world think that the Jews are very religious, devout believers in God? What do you think? Sure. Well, according to the New Testament Christianity and what the Bible says, what's true about Jews? Believer or unbeliever? Or let's say, going to spend eternity in heaven or not? Not. Right? Why? Because the fullness of God was displayed in Christ. He, he is the Messiah that they are still looking for. So we don't need to look to anything other than Christ for the full revelation of God and his character. Um, you know, even the um, language that Paul uses here um, is, is just rich uh, with theology, Right? I mean, when you start to break it down, that you know, I believed as a young boy and, and growing up Catholic, I believed that you know Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, he, ever, you know, believed that you know he was the Son of God and he was born of this lady named Mary and that he died. You know, everybody celebrates Easter and, and but. When you start to really boil this down to he's the creator, the sustainer, the first, the supreme, the preeminent, and keep going on and on and on, right? You know, like we could go to the outlet mall this afternoon, or y'all could go and report back to me. It's too crowded for me over there. The Easter Bunny was there yesterday. My wife told me this, but... um, Really crowded, right? So we could do a survey... You know, you take um, 50 people each in the class here. We all are going to ask 50 individuals, do you believe in Jesus Christ? You know, I would say that 99%, if not 100, would say yes. Does that make them Christians? And why doesn't it? When you look at John 3.16, right? So why doesn't it? Even what? Even the demons believe, right? So there's a difference when you, when you break down the word believe and what that really means, right? And that's what I think we're getting at here is this fullness of God. When you really grasp who that is, if that doesn't change your life, then you're you're really not a believer. You know, you really aren't embracing the fact that this guy really is who he said he is. I told you last week, I think, didn't I, that Josh McDowell illustration with the silver dollars? You know, I mean, I don't know what other conclusion you can come to when you think of it that way, right? Um, So the fullness was in Christ, and all we have to do is look to him, and we see him in the Gospels and hear him preached. We, We know what God's like. Isn't that awesome? We know what God is is like. That God that we saw on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, that's the same guy that came here and walked the earth and died for us. 
right? The same guy, we know what he's like because of the Bible. And, and look at verse 20. It was God's pleasure to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in the heaven. God's going to, he's going to reconcile creation, right? Creation suffered um, a curse because of the fall. We see that in Genesis 3. And Romans 8 tells us that God is going to bring that back to its original state as well. Creation, it moans, Paul tells us in Romans 8, but it will be brought back to its original obedience just like it was before the fall. Think about it. The land and the seas lose their hostility. Y'all like going to the beach? Everybody likes the beach, right? I don't know that I could live at the beach, but I very much enjoy vacationing at the beach. I enjoy going in the water. I enjoy going way out in the water. But probably three years ago, I bought a really nice snorkel and a mask, you know, and, and the fins, and I like, you know, swimming around there looking at stuff. First time I go out, I, f- I found a, a, I saw a, a, a bill floating around down on the bottom. What is your thought? You know, $20, maybe $100. Uh, swim over, it's a $1 bill. <laughs> but I came back and told kid, I found a sand dollar. <laughs> a real one. I used it for a bookmark for years in my book. But this mask has a really weird peripheral vision kind of thing. I don't know what it is. And I mean to tell you, a fish that big can go by, and what do you do? You know? Because there's always the thought. You're right. He's out there. (laughs) There's always the... Think about that, though. When God redoes this, you know, I mean, Scripture says it better. You know, the the cobra, the children can play um, with... I don't know that I'll ever play with a snake, but, you know, (laughs) poisonous or not. But nonetheless, you know, that's what the Bible tells us, that as God recreates that into the to the way to where his creation is not hostile towards us. Everything in the universe will be reconciled, um, except what? That which rejects God. And what is the only thing that will reject God? What do you think? Unrepentant sinners, right? I mean, as they reject God. In, in every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, this is, this is incredible. If you didn't know this, it's, or if you, I'm assuming everybody knows this, but what a refreshing reminder. Every reference to reconciliation in the Bible is God who takes the initiative. Isn't that awesome? God is the one that takes the initiative in reconciling us to him. It's a explicitly one-sided process. He does virtually everything that's involved in it. And then where's our responsibility? Because there is one. What is it? To believe. To to respond to that. Uh, Jerry Bridges' book, um, uh, Trusting God, lays this all out just beautifully. If you've never read that, it's a great book to read. We respond to that we put into practice the faith that he bestows upon us. 
So what we need to note here, though, is that God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile us. Salvation is God's joyous work. Um, I mean, that's a huge revelation to a lost world, right? The word, listen to this. The word reconcile is, is one of the most significant and descriptive terms in all of the Bible. Matter of fact, it's one of five key words that the New Testament uses to describe the rich, richness of salvation. Uh, one, another one of the words is justification. This is justification is where the sinner stands before God guilty and not only guilty, what else? Condemned, but is declared righteous, justified. That's what we are as Christians. That ought to make us excited, right? The fact that we stand guilty and condemned before the judge and he justifies us, declares us righteous. The, the next word, redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave but is granted freedom. That's redemption. Forgiveness is another one. Sinner stands before God as having this debt that cannot be paid, but the debt is paid by God himself and forgotten. And adoption is another one. The sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son or a daughter. And then in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend. So here Paul gives us a concise look at the one word reconciliation. And the verb that he uses here means to change or exchange. It's a New Testament uh, has carries the idea of a change in relationship, as we said, from enemy to friend. And when people change from being enemies with each other to being at peace, they're said to be reconciled. And when uh, when the Bible speaks of recon- reconciliation, then it refers to the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. We were enemies, and now we're not. But Paul actually changes the term a little bit here. In verse 20, uh, he adds a, he uses a compound word. He adds a preposition to the word reconcile and it intensifies the meaning. And this blew me away when I read this. It means thoroughly, completely, or totally reconciled. Paul no doubt used this stronger term as a counterattack against the false teachers. So he didn't just use the ordinary word because the, the Gnostics held that Christ, again, was merely a, a, a spirit emanating from God. They, that denied any possibility of man being reconciled to Christ. So Paul uses this really strong word in refuting that denial and uses a word that means total, complete, and full reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And uh, that only makes sense because he's just talked about Jesus being the fullness of deity in verse 19, right? And again in chapter 2, verse 9, as we looked at. he's a, Because of who he is, he is able to fully reconcile us. So, next question logically then is how does the Father reconcile us? And Paul shows us in the second half of verse 20 and the first half of verse 22. Look at that, verse 20. Second part, by the blood of his cross. Verse 22, the first half, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So God's method of reconciliation is death of Christ, right? Our 
reconciliation took nothing less than the death of God's son. Um, and, you know, I know that's all familiar to us, right? We know that. I mean, we're getting ready to have what, however old you are, that many Easter's is, that you can remember back. You're right. And, and for those of us that have been saved for a long time, these are great reminders because there's something that a new believer has that bothers me that I don't have. Hopefully it bothers you that you don't have sometimes. Maybe you do have it. I'm the only one. That new believer zeal, right? I mean, so these are really good reminders to us of, of to go back and think of what that reconciliation really means and He'll show us again here in, in a minute uh, when, in verse 21 when he tells us we are alienated from God. I mean, you, do you think like that? But think of that new believer zeal, right? How, what do we call people that have just believed? We call them what? They're on fire for Jesus, right? I remember when I was first saved, I probably should have been locked in a closet somewhere for a bit. You know, I really disoriented a lot of people, right? It took me a long time. But that zeal, there's something for that. We, we need that in our lives. So I guess I like reading passages and studying passages like this because it causes me to, to kind of come back in my thinking to where I once was, alienated from God, and now he's reconciled me. You know, that, those should be wow factor type things in our lives. Um. You know, the cross is the ultimate evidence that there's no link that God won't go to to save us. And one of my favorite verses with that in mind is is Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards on that verse. Edward says in concerning Romans 8.32, Surely if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that after he should after this, that after, I'm sorry, it can never be imagined that ever he should after this deny, withhold from his people, for those whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. I mean, wow. If, G- if God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? Isn't that a blessing to think that the Father... That the Father, because of what he did to Christ, is never going to withhold anything from us at all because of what he did to his own son. So the million-dollar question for me then is why God the Father would reconcile us. What was his purpose in reconciliation? Especially in light of verse 21 that I mentioned a second ago, because look at that. This is us and you. I've been insert my name there. You, Tim Brown who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That was me. Why in the world, if that was me, would God pick me? Right? Makes no sense. 
does it? I mean, if you, would you pick me? If you knew what I was really like, would you pick me? You know, and God the Father, by the way, knows what we're really like. And alienated. What does that mean? What do you think? It's a very powerful word, kind of weird, but alienated. It's a permanent condition. Can't come out of it unless, right, God brought us out of it. Um, Means you're hostile in what? In evil deeds? And that's what we all, without Christ, were like. But humanity doesn't like to hear that, do they? Have you ever talked like that to somebody? You know what? You're alienated from God. You're hostile in your mind, and all you do is evil deeds. That's what it says, right? That's talking about lost humanity. Would you like it if somebody came up to you and said that to you? Here's a real old example of that. This is a 17th century Christian woman um, invites Lady Huntington, one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, to come and hear George Whitfield, the great preacher. And this was the reply. Obviously, this lady, the uh, Duchess of Buckingham, um, knew of how Whitfield preaches, And uh, this was her reply. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. Right? This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. In other words, what? I mean, can't you just see her? Are you kidding me? You know? I mean, but wow, you know? You know, uh, Paul's statement that we're alienated from God, enemies. I mean, have you ever thought about it? You are, were, an enemy of God's. That may sound harsh, right, to us too, but it's true. And uh, if you don't think it's true, listen to this story. This is true. True story here. On April 15th, 1912, the White Star Liner Titanic raised her stern high above the frigid waters of the North Atlantic and began a slow, seemingly calibrated descent as her lighted portholes and towering towering stern slid silently toward the ocean floor. That famous night saw the extremes of human behavior, from abysmal cowardice to the terrible beauties of sacrificial love. But with the Titanic gone and her lifeboat spread upon the icy waters among the crying, drowning swimmers, the story was almost totally devoted to self-serving cowardice. For of the 1,600 people who were not able to get into the lifeboats, only 13 were picked up by the 18 half-empty boats that hovered nearby. In boat number five, when third officer Pittman heard the anguished cries, he turned the boat around and shouted, Now, men, we will pull toward the wreck. But the passengers protested, Why should we lose our lives in a useless attempt to save others from the ship? Pittman gave in, and for the next hour, number five, with 40 people on board in a capacity of 65, heaved gently 
on the calm Atlantic while the 40 listened to the fading cries of swimmers 300 yards away. The story was much the same on the other boats. In number two, fourth officer Boxhall asked the ladies, shall we go back? They said no. So boat number two, about 60% full, likewise drifted while her people callously listened. On boat number six, the situation was reversed as the women begged Quartermaster Hitchens to return, but he refused, painting a vivid picture of the drowning overturning the boat. The women pleaded as the cries grew fewer. Of the 18 boats, only one boat, number 14, returned to help. And this was an hour after the Titanic sinking, when the thrashing crowd had thinned out. Now, the author who wrote that said this, quote, To me, the personal drama of the sinking of the Titanic is a parable of a world gone wrong. Fallen humanity is adrift on the unfriendly sea, alienated, unable to help one another despite some furative individual attempts. The wrongness of everything points to the fundamental problem of people's estrangement from each other and from creation by sin. It is a picture of a world desperately in need of reconciliation and the harmony and rightness which that brings. You know what? Humanity's condition, it's just horrible. It's terrible, right? But God's reconciling purpose, according to verse 22b, Look at that, is to present you and I holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the scriptures paint the darkest possibility for mankind apart from Christ. They also give us the highest, noblest vision for mankind known to any other religion in the world, right? Christ. When one is reconciled to him, we're presented holy before God. Again, that makes no sense without blame, beyond reproach. We, we become co-heirs of Christ. What does that mean? And that, by the way, will be eternal. What does it mean to be a co-heir? Who's Jesus' father? <coughs> yeah. The same inheritance Christ received. Does that... That should cause us to walk differently in and out every day, shouldn't it? You know, we've been reconciled. This is our position before God, not then, now. And it will be increasingly true as we grow into the image of Christ day to day. So in light of our reconciliation, we ought to do everything in our power to practically walk blamelessly, to walk a holy life right now. Um, So Paul says, you know, in Philippians 2.13, God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So practical holiness should be in our lives now. And I then have to ask myself the question, how? How can I have practical holiness in my life today? What is today? The second, right? Yesterday was April Fool's Day. Did anybody get fooled? The gospel won't fool, will it? No fools there. So what do you think? How how can you do that? Practical holiness should be our life's business today because we are holy before God forever if we're in Christ right now. 
So how today? What do you think? I need help here. Y'all got to tell me. We have to be committed to take sin seriously. Okay. And fight it with God gives us all we need and within his word, the instructions and putting on the armor of God. Mm-hmm. But never for a moment think that Satan isn't out to destroy. The world is out to destroy. Our sinful flesh is. Mm-hmm. Sin is serious. Yeah. And it wants death. Yeah. It wants death. That's a great way of putting it. It wants to pull us away from God, right? It, we were alienated. We were enemies. Now we're not. But does that mean that he just lets us go? Let me ask you this. How much did you battle Satan, the world, and your flesh before you became a Christian? Pardon? Never. Never. I did what I want, when, where, why, and how I wanted. You know, and didn't care who was in my way. Um, now, today, do you battle Satan, the world, and the flesh? You know, why? You know, why not go with it? It was easier, wasn't it? It was easier to do what I wanted to do. But we don't because of all this stuff we've been looking at, right? Because of this holy God who laid his life down for us, called us to walk this in this manner. And, you know, I'm getting older now, as if you can't tell. I'm a lot closer to the end of that than a lot of y'all. And um, when I was a lot of y'all's age, I didn't even think about that kind of thing. But now, I mean, my fight's almost over, right? I mean, any of us could be over tomorrow for that matter, or right now for that matter. But why is it so hard for 75, 80 years to walk this way? Because... I think as Christian said, it's a fight now. It's a war. And if you don't think we're in a war, then you're not paying attention. <laughs> right? um, you know, we're, it's a war. You know, Kit and I were talking the other night with that thing, that fire on 85 um, got me to think. And I, you know, or no, it wasn't the fire on 85. It was the news report of the ISIS, uh, you know, now has the TSA scanning equipment. And so now they're able to test their devices to see if it can go through TSA. And once they get it done, then now they, and so they've stopped laptop uh, travel on airplanes out of seven countries. Well, what does that do to businessmen? You know, why even go on the trip if you can't take the computer that's got all the stuff you need? But you see, and so I said to her, I said, why why do they care? I mean, do you care about them? I mean, I care that they're perishing and going to hell, but, you know, you know, I've got enough going on in my life that I don't have to worry about some guy over in some, you know what I mean? And her answer it stunned me. I should have known this, but she's a lot wiser than I am. She, she said, because their life's purpose is to kill the infidels, and you are one of those to them. You know, so that should cause us to think, well, what should our life purpose be? You know, based on what we looked at this morning, to live a holy life before God and to evangelize them, right? That's, they're perishing and going to hell. They could blow me up right now and I know where I'm headed, right? And, and so that, that's a 
kind of a wake-up call, you know, when you look at our world today and know that the fight and the battle that we're in. So anyway, we'll stop with that one there and uh, hope you have a good week of practicing practicing holiness in your life. Uh,